Hello and welcome to a festive edition of Mooney Goes Wild. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Ridiculous barber, Sammy. What do you have in your tree? Christmas kind of endures. And then, of course, um, Christmas dinner is always the same. Yes, it's, it's always the same. I'm not going to have turkey and chicken. Excuse me, excuse me. Hello, 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 Aina Richard. Yes. I know you're enjoying the party. yourself. It is. I know you're enjoying the party, and I'm sorry for breaking it up on you. But here we are, and I thought, what do we normally do at this time of year on Mooney Goes Wild? Well, we do what we always do. We talk about nature. And usually we bring some gift ideas last minute. I hasten to add, it's only a few days to go to encourage you to get out and buy something natural let's say if you want to put it like that and we're going to start with you Richard Collins out of Malahide you've got a suggestion for us I believe Derek and panel the book I particularly liked recently is Richard Nairn's Wild Shores the magic of Ireland's coastline and it seems a kind of an appropriate thing for Christmas because it reviews Richard's life and the past it's the past the present and to some extent the future it's a lovely book you felt that when he was writing it he was enjoying himself so if he's enjoying himself writing it you are likely to enjoy yourself reading it it's a kind of a travel odyssey at one level and it celebrates the life of Prager the great Irish botanist in, in a sense, it's a homage to um, to to uh, Prager, and also it's on another level, it is a kind of odyssey, a kind of Leopold Bloom wanders around Dublin for a day. Richard visits all parts of the coast of Ireland and celebrates them all. He travels by foot and by boat and I think by plane at one stage, if I remember rightly. And it has little bits of things interesting in it. At the time of Prager, the rules of the civil service were applied with a wise liberality, Richard says, because Prager used to duck away from the National Library where he worked at lunch hour on Friday and he would head off around the country and he would head back to the library at lunch hour on the Monday. If there's an interesting aside there that you wouldn't immediately think of, the train service back then was so much better than it is now. The public services were there. They were ahead back then. You could go. Prager went everywhere by train, by bus. It was a wonderful thing. He didn't drive a car around the country. So that's a kind of something for our time. I recommend this. It's enjoyable for everyone. It's not for the nerdy naturalist who wants to know all about the minutiae of some species or other. It is everything. As the news of the world had a slogan long ago, uh, all human life is there. Is it for children or adults, would you say, Richard? Well, it's very readable. I I hope my older grandchildren in their teenage years will certainly read it. It's a lively book, an enjoyable book, but that might be just my mood. I don't know. But I think most people will, when they pick it up, they might think, oh, it's going to be an old travel thing and dates of buildings put up and disasters of the past. No, it's, it's very enjoyable. Richard, I would certainly uh, second that. I think that Richard Nairn is an excellent natural history writer, very engaging, very prolific as well. He has many books out. He's a resident of County Wicklow, like myself. Mm. I think it's really good to see so many Irish authors coming up forward now, writing about the environment, writing about nature, writing about wildlife and being really inspirational for people of all different interests and backgrounds, people who are really into wildlife, people who are into scientific uh, treatises and people who are into enjoying just the wonder of the natural world. So I'd highly recommend Wild Shores. Have you seen it, Aina? I have indeed and it's great because when you read it I've been to lots I love the coastline swimming and diving and all of this and there's places that he has visited that I haven't visited so I'll have to get on my skates now and make sure that I can go to those places too so the next time I meet Richard I can converse fluently with him about some place that I haven't been until his book inspired me to go there. Well you can find all the details about that particular offering from Richard Collins but written by Richard Nairn let me add on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Aina, we can speak to you about the gift or the offering you have for us without mentioning the fact that you've got several books on the shelves. 
or of my own. Oh, yes, for sure, buy my books, of course, do indeed. But if you are not going to add to your collection of clutter in your house, my recommendation for a Christmas gift this year is an experience. An experience? Yes, Derek, a wildlife experience. <laughs> what do you think I meant? I mean, something that you get out of doors, you do this wonderful, exciting thing, you look forward to it happening and you have the memories of it afterwards. Now, during the year last year, towards the end of the year, I was down in... Avondale, where Kielce had opened a boardwalk up among the trees and you ended up at the top of a big slide oh, yes. and I was whooshing down the slide. And I thought, this is a great experience and I must do something similar again. And what I am recommending this year for your experience is Zip It. It's actually a wonderful, like a children's playground for adults, way up in the trees. The thing about it is that you have to actually climb up things, clip yourself on. You start off at a metre above the ground and by the end of it, at the hardest course, you are 21 metres, the height of two-storey houses, up above the ground, way above the top of the trees. Squirrels have nothing on it. But it's not open until February. So if you give the gift now at Christmas time, you can look forward to starting from February on when the weather is good. And then it'll be something that you can go with your seven-year-old child right up to old ones like me, anyone at all that has the nerve to climb up those things and go zipping through the trees. It's great. Now, you paid a visit yourself recently. I did. I went down to, I mean, talking is cheap. I went down to see what it was like and I met the site manager, AJ, down into Bratton Woods and he actually showed me the nuts and bolts and explained how it was all happening. Mind you, it was closed that day because it was too cold in the winter to have it. So I didn't get an experience up in the trees myself. (laughs) But it looked exciting, I have to say. And certainly when my grandchildren become the suitable age of seven, I will be encouraged to go and I might even go with them myself. We are about a three-hour adventure course in the trees that starts with ladders. Each one will have activities like swings and bridges and zip lines to then come back down to the ground. And there's five of those courses for anyone age seven and up. So it's all up in the air, in fact. So you, nothing is on the ground. So you have to start off by climbing up a ladder, which I'm looking at them now, and they must be at least... Oh, they must be at least ten metres above my head. And you just climb up those. That's the start of it. The very beginning, maybe the first uh, 45 minutes or so, is a a practice course that's only about a metre off the ground, so you can kind of maintain your comfort level. The next courses after that, maybe you go to one metre as well, a second metre, three, five, and kind of you choose your comfort level and how high you would like to be. Okay, so what do you do now? Do we need special clothes? I'm here in my boots and I'm here in my scarf and my gloves. My ordinary gloves keep my hands warm. Mm. But if I was coming on this, would I have to get all dressed up? Athletic style clothing is definitely the best. Closed toed and heeled shoes, definitely no uh, sandals or flip flops, anything of the sort. Um, You can bring your own gloves if you'd like. We also sell some gloves that are actually just similar to gardening gloves to protect your hands for uh, the friction on the wires and the clips and the cables and such. So I'm here now with my good proper shoes on. I have my gardening gloves on. I am decided I am going to be 11 years of age. So am I in the first category or the second category? At 11, you would have three separate courses you're able to do after the practice course. So we'd have this one that's right behind us here uh, across the road at one meter, and then two meters here behind me at the second course. And then, like you mentioned here, this is about uh, five meters off the ground for our highest course those 11-year-olds can do. Now, so we're actually, we've actually come now to the practice one. The practice one is a meter high. I've climbed up a small little ladder. I'm standing on the top of this. And it looks to me like a steel tightrope between this platform and one just at the next tree, which is probably three meters away. So there's a steel tightrope at my feet. And above my head, there's another like a clothesline going across from one to the other. So am I to hang from the clothesline and walk on the tightrope? Is that the idea that's exactly right yeah the big chunky soft rope right there we hold on to that uh, with nice tight grip and you can uh, keep yourself stable as you walk along the tight rope to that platform over there so the idea of this whole thing is that you walk on tight ropes through various parts of the woodland and this is only a practice one so it's a meter high but I don't have to be a tightrope walker and I'm holding on to this harness above my head that's sliding along the clothesline at the top to get across, as it were, while admiring all the wonderful scenery as we do along. That's exactly right. This is the, the 
My favorite part of these practice courses is that this is an example of every kind of activity you'll encounter. There are other tight ropes just like this one out in the course, but there's also crossings just like the one next to it that are just a single bridge that you have actually hand handrails to hold on to as you go across. This is like a kid's playground for grown-ups, for big, big people. So you start off and you're going to walk around the course. So the first bit from 3A to 3B is walking on a tightrope hanging from the clothesline. The next one I'm looking at is walking on a wobbly bridge so that there's a step and then a big gap and then the next step's you're stretching out and going and again holding on and then you're safely at the next platform. So you're going from one place to another by all sorts of different ways. So whether you're on a tightrope or whether you're walking on a bridge or whether you're on a zip line, it's not all the same thing if it's each one of these is for a little bit and then you're on to the next one and there's a platform to rest each time. Phew, I've made that bit. And while we're only here at the practice one and we're only here where it's up a little bit, this goes up to what? The highest point on the course is at the very end of our red course and it's about 21 meters and that point we call it a base jump. It's like a single zip line that you jump off the platform and down you'll come nice and safe to the ground. Yeah, so this is actually twice the height of a two-story house. Exactly, yeah. So you'd be on the roof of a two-story house twice. So you're way up 21 metres and then you're just abseiling down, zooming down the line. Oh, that must be a great adrenaline rush, is it? Absolutely, yeah. It's the grand finale, I'd say, of the entire site. And nothing can go wrong. Correct. Well, our gear is inspected on a regular basis and even every morning, the instructors, when they arrive, that's kind of our responsibility is to go through every single inch of the, of the course and make sure nothing's wrong. And there's no age limit, so people who are over 70, if they want to, can do it as well. Absolutely. I, I do remember a young lady of 82 coming through. Uh, she had a great time. Did a few courses, but had a great time anyway. So, I'm sorted for my Christmas presents, Derek. I know what I'm going to do. How do you feel like going up through the trees yourself? I could imagine you, Derek, zipping through the trees, 21 metres high. Wow. AJ, thank you very much for giving me a rundown on all this. I'm only sorry that it's closed and I haven't had a go myself at it. You're very welcome and we're looking forward to seeing you back uh, in the summertime. I might just give it a go, Amy. You never know. Anyway, if you're interested, details on the website rte.ie forward slash mini. Time now to say hello to Terry Flanagan at his home in Dublin 15. And Terry, your suggestion is a photograph but not any old photograph, a photograph taken by our very own Eric Dempsey. You met him recently, I believe. Yes, mm. sir. I met him at the Irishtown Nature Park here in Dublin. Oh, yeah. Now, everybody knows Eric is a superb birder Fantastic. and he's a regular contributor to the programme. Yep. But a lot of listeners, they don't know that he's also an excellent photographer. Mm -hmm. So not only will you see Eric out with his binoculars, but you'll also see him with that trusted camera hanging over his shoulder. Anyway, Eric has decided to share his favourite shots with us and he has recently redesigned his website mm -hmm. highlighting these photographs and how you can obtain a limited edition print. So I met up with him on a bright sunny morning just under those famous chimneys at the Pigeon House from where we spent a few hours observing the bird life and also photographing them. Okay, Terry, uh, you, you can see just in the grass, where the grass meets the sand dunes, there's two have just landed in there. You see the male, the male's up front. Oh, Eric, I can see the two birds. I yeah, can't actually yeah. tell what they are. These are stone chats, Terry. Oh, it's okay. a male and female. And they're, they're about, they're, what, 40 metres yeah, or so Yeah, maybe 35 metres away. Oh, hang on, male is coming a little bit closer. Oh, sit up, come on, sit up, you beauty. Oh, that's beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful. I love days like this, Terry. Now, tell me about the camera because it looks very, very long and very, very heavy. Yeah. <laughs> How close in are you getting well, to the boards this, with that? This, this is a 1 to 500 millimetre lens, so it, it sort of magnifies about 10 times. It's like looking right. through a really good pair of binoculars. Top of the range camera, I presume. It's, yeah, it's, it's my new baby, as yeah. it were. Now, and Eric, everyone knows you as a birdman, right? Yes, uh, yeah. But really, you're kind of drifting now into the world of photography. I have always been in photography. Terry, I'm 61 and I find that really hard to believe. For my 21st birthday, my very generous and wonderful late parents gave me a 500 mirror Tamron lens. Now, it was a, the height of sophistication back then, and I had an old Minolta SLR camera and I was using slide film. So, I have 40 years behind a long lens. Would believe you it or call not. yourself a birder or a photographer? 
I'm a boarder who takes photographs and I'm a photographer who boards. That's and, a real and, politician's answer. Yeah, it is. And, and, and it's very, very specific because there's a lot of people out there and they have big cameras, but an awful lot of them aren't carrying a pair of binoculars. Yeah. I'm a boarder first, but I'm a person who loves wildlife photography. Always have. It's, it's a way of capturing what I call moments in nature. But the photograph doesn't come first. The bird comes first. Now, speaking of the birds, those two are actually coming quite close they to are. us now. And, and that's because we're not pushing them, Terry. Right. We're just standing our ground. They are getting used to us. And these are sort of some of the very basic elements of the old bird watcher's code is that the bird's welfare comes first. You don't push a bird. You don't force it into a corner. You don't enter into its comfort zone. If it feels like coming into yours, it will. And that's the, that's the beauty. But I suppose I've been birding since I was a kid. I've been looking at birds and watching their behaviour and understanding what they do. So perhaps I have a sort of a, a year's experience that will tell me when a bird is comfortable or not. I mean, to me, I look at some wonderful photographs and they're beautiful shots. But you see the bird is alert and tense. And it means that the photographer has just entered into that comfort zone. You can tell that, can you? I can tell that from a shot. To me, a bird that is behaving normally, that's feeding, that has its, you know, you can see the relaxed feel. That's a good shot because you have not entered into that bird's comfort zone. So to me, the bird comes first. Mm. The subject that you're photographing, the welfare of that is much, much more important than the photograph you get. If the board grants you a photograph, that is wonderful. That's a bonus. That is the bonus. So when I, I'm out with the camera, I don't sit in a hide, for example. I've, I have a little hide, but I very rarely sit in it. I haven't got the patience. Mm-hmm. I am out birding and I'll carry the camera with me. I, I have a strap around my shoulder and the camera is hanging off me all the time. Whenever I'm out, the camera is beside me. Because you can catch just little moments that you cannot set up or you cannot prepare for. I've always found it difficult when I'm out... Like here in Irishtown Nature Park, when I'm coming to have a look at the birds, do I bring the camera or do I bring the binoculars or do I bring both? And I find if I bring both of them, one tends to kind of hamper the other. I could be watching something. I put down the binoculars. I try to get the photo and the birds are gone. So I've often found it's better to bring either the camera or the binoculars. How do you feel about that? If you are out looking at, at birds or any wildlife, pair binoculars gives you an insight into what's going on. You can see the bird, you can identify the bird. I will always carry both. I can never go without binoculars if I'm out taking photographs. Mm. And it's just something, like, there's no right or wrong to it. But to me, your binoculars is what you use to identify the bird, to see where it is, to get an idea of where you should be. And, like, there's some very basic things that, that like, most people today is beautiful it's it's not too sunny people think you need really bright sunshine to photograph wildlife but that's the worst thing because just all the colors get blown out and and exaggerated what you need is a nice overcast bright day colors are more natural give us some tips then if i were to go out or if someone's to go out and take photographs of wildlife well there's a whole range of things that you can do i mean for example like we're in dublin and you know you can see that the tide behind us is rising now out on a place like the bull island if you go out there in a rising tide just off the causeway all the birds are pushed up right up against the edge of the causeway they're feeding there so if you get there an hour before high tide the birds are so busy feeding that they will come right up against you the other thing as well is like we all have uh, most of us will have nut feeders and bird food and we have feeding stations in uh, in our gardens put up some natural branches some natural trees because birds like to perch before they go into a feeder you get a much more natural shot a, a, a photograph of a bird on a nut feeder isn't a great photograph from a wildlife photograph point of view it's a lovely photograph of the bird but it's not a great photograph from a wildlife point of view. So put up some trees, old logs, or branches, and and birds will part, and it'll look far more natural. But the most important thing is, to me, is get to know your subject, understand what they're going to do, learn how they behave, and always put the bird first. Photographers who infringe on that comfort zone to me, just, you just need to take a step back and the bird will come to you. I've had some wonderful experiences. I, in my memoir, Don't Die in Autumn, I wrote about a snow bunting, Terry. 
and I was photographing this snow bunting up in Anagassan County Loud and I had a big lens, even bigger than this, I used to call it, I call it Big Mama. It's a big, huge lens and it's a ton weight and I was photographing this snow bunting and it got so used to me that it was just walking around beside me and suddenly everything on the beach started flying and a sparrowhawk was coming through and I expected that snow bunting to crouch down and run into the grass, which is what they would normally do, but instead... It ran towards me and came in under the tripod right in front of me and sat beside my leg. That must have been a wonderful moment. Absolutely wonderful. Two sentient beings accepting each other. And like the photographs I got of that bird was just phenomenal. And, and that's what it's about. It's, I was not going into its comfort zone. It was coming into mine. And that's, that's what it's about, you know. Is it a lonely hobby? Do you spend a lot of time on your own waiting for that perfect shot? It is, I suppose, because I spend a lot of time out by myself. But I'm sort of comfortable in my own skin because I love being out and about by myself. And it's funny, people talk about mindfulness. And, you know, I've known mindfulness since I was a kid because I go into a different world when I'm watching wildlife, when I'm photographing wildlife. And, like, I'm very lucky in that, as you know, Terry, I've given talks all over the country. Uh, I give presentations all over the place. So I'm able to use my photography in a positive way. It's not just sitting on my, my computer at home. I'm actually using my photography to hopefully inspire people, to take an interest in nature, to educate kids, to, to talk about like what we need to do, and maybe to even allow people share in those sort of little moments in nature that I capture with my camera. It's my way of perhaps sharing my passion with a much wider audience. What's the best photo you've ever taken? Oh, that's a good one, Terry. Um, it's a short-eared owl in flight. And the bird is looking directly at me with those beautiful yellow eyes. And I suppose why I am proud of that shot is that there was three birds feeding this big, huge crop field in County Meath. And I went into the field and I sat but allowed the birds to see me. And I saw that one bird was doing a circle every five, ten minutes. So I sat into an area where it could see me. So it had the choice to avoid me, but it didn't. It came round. And the first time, I didn't do anything. I just sat there and let it see me. About five, ten minutes later, it came around again. But this time, I lifted the camera. But I didn't photograph it. I just just let it hear the, the shutter. And it didn't spook. Third time, it came around, and I lifted the camera and got the shot. And I was very proud of that shot because it was on the board's terms. And it's just the image, you know, that owl is looking straight at me and in flight. And I, I remember thinking when I saw that, well, geez, if I don't take another shot ever again in my life, I can be proud of that shot. And if that was the best photograph you ever got, tell me about the one that got away. Because there's always one that got away. It was smudged or it was overexposed or whatever. <laughs> the one that got away, Terry, is it's a funny one. I was down uh, at Broadlock uh, in County Wicklow. And at the time, the old house in the back was used as a sort of a nursing home and a, a rest home. And I was there at dawn. And I saw in the corner of my eye something emerge from the gardens of this house and it was bright yellow and I hadn't got my camera set up my camera was still in my bag and I said what is this bright yellow thing coming down and the yellow thing was coming at me and at me and I raised my binoculars really slowly and it was a fox with a full loaf of Brennan's bread (laughs) right and it was walking and it was getting closer and closer and I reached from my camera and as soon as I just lifted the camera up, the, the fox saw me and just into the left and gone. And I remember thinking, if Hungary had got that shot, it would have made a fortune. Brennan's bread, today's bread, today. It would have been a fantastic shot. That, to me, is a shot that got away. Am I right in saying that there has been a huge increase in wildlife photography? I personally would probably put it down to two things. Number one, the pandemic, when people were locked in at home and they had nothing to do. And what they did is they started taking photographs of the birds out in the garden, as you say, on the feeders. I'd also put it down to our own Iron Nature competition, which we ran with the Botanic Gardens and the OPW. There were thousands and thousands of people 
who sent in photographs and the quality was incredible. Absolutely. And, you know, I think people are getting more and more interested in photography. There's no question about that. I think digital cameras have made a big difference because you can see your images straight away. Like I was raised on uh, slide film and you'd, you know, use up 40 rolls and you'd send them off and you'd get them back and you'd look at them and it was overexposed and underexposed. So you learned your trade very, very quickly. I had a little rule when I was on film and that was for every roll of film, if you get just one, just one. Good, I'd be happy. Yeah, just one out of 36. You'd be really happy. And like how many photographs you go, oh, overexposed, underexposed. Oh, God. So you learn your trade. Whereas with a digital camera, you can overexpose, underexpose, change your ISOs. And, Is it cheating? And no. Let me answer it in a different way. My view is a camera never took a good shot. Okay. The person behind the camera takes the good shot. The person behind the camera is the eye that sees, that's the moment, click. Your camera is just your tool to capture that moment. And it's just that the tools are getting better to capture that moment. And, and it all fine-tunes the ability to capture an image. Eric, I'm going to ask you a question, and I presume you don't know the answer to this. How many photographs, wildlife photographs, have you taken? Oh, good God, I have thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I, I turned digital in 2008, so that's 14 years ago. And I'm taking photographs almost like on a daily basis. So I'm also very hard on my shots. There's shots you just go, up, oh, out, out, delete, 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 delete. I'm not one of these people who keep every image. I try and keep the best images. And as we're just taking some photographs at Stone, I probably took about 30, 40. I'll probably just keep one or two of those. Right. Or if none of them are really what I want, I'll just delete them all. Because they just take up room and I'll never use them again. So, But you are using your best photographs because you've started off a website. Tell us a little bit about the website. Yeah, our website, birdsireland.com, which has been around for a long, long time. But we've changed the emphasis on the website now because at many of the presentations I was giving, people would come up to me and say, God, it was a lovely image of whatever. Is any chance you could get a copy of that or a print of that? And I never really got around to delivering on that. But this week we've just launched our new look, birdsireland.com, and it allows people to purchase a limited edition signed print by myself. Each photograph is limited to just 25 prints. They'll be mounted in a beveled mount, gift wrapped, packaged beautifully and signed by myself and only 25 each of those prints are available and it's not just birds I've butterfly shots even moth shots you were down looking yeah. at moths with me I also have things like a hedgehog and fox and various other things like damselflies and a lovely cuckoo bee so it's a, a wide cross section of wildlife and we've just launched that this week so birdsireland.com and do you know it's a beautiful gift a signed limited edition once those 25 prints are gone, that print will never be available again for anybody to hold and to have. It's a perfect gift for yourself or even for, for a friend. And an ideal present for Christmas. So if you're thinking of, what could I get for that friend who loves wildlife? A limited print of one of 42 images that is on our site might just be the answer to that Christmas conundrum. Eric's work is fantastic, no doubt about it. We've used many of the pictures here on the website. He's been with us for a long time, longer than I care to remember. You're a fan, ain't any, Lana, of Eric I Dempsey? Am a, I am indeed a fan of Eric Dempsey's for a long time. Eric has provided me with pictures for many occasions. So it's great to see his work available now on his website. And he has a stunning picture, which I think is great, of a short-eared owl flying over the evening sky. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. So a limited edition of that, if anyone is listening, would be a lovely present for me. For you. <laughs> or you could pop down to the Bull Island and you might be lucky enough to see one at this time of year because this is the time of year you find the short-eared owls. We've got two resident species, the long-eared and the barn owl. But the short-eared is a winter visitor, Niall. It is mainly, yes. We do have a very small breeding population in the Schlieve Bloom Mountains. Occasionally they do nest there. But by and large, it is a winter visitor to Ireland from Britain. And it seems from 
of France as well. You get French birds coming across. And the thing about the short-eared owl, although it's the rarest of our regularly occurring three owl species, it's probably the easiest to see because they tend to be out during the day. And you can see that from Eric's wonderful photograph on his website, that owl is clearly photographed during the day flying across a field. Absolutely stunning. Bull Island is a good place to see them, is it not? It is, yes. Yeah, it used to be. I've never seen one down there, mind you. Well, it's sort of, they are very thin on the ground, but sometimes you can be lucky and actually see them coming in off the sea. And the first port of call is Bull Island. They're they're drawn to it. They see this big urban mass around them and then this this wonderful wetland space in front of them. They'll come in and hunt there. The Wicklow Coast can be quite good for them as well, actually. Birdwatch Ireland's own East Coast Nature Reserve, our logo bird there is actually a short-eared owl because sometimes you see them quartering over the coastal fields and the nearby airfield as well. They love that kind of short grass. Richard, not far from you, the Bull Island. Have you ever seen a short-eared owl down there? Oh, yes, very often, in fact. And I used to see them long ago. I used to count Rogerstown Estuary and I would invariably see one or two short-eared owls. They hunt by day and by night. They are very opportunistic owls. And they're not all that nervous. They get up on the grass in front of you and they flutter along to a post and they look at you, you know, that sort of thing. Of course, they haven't ears. They have ears, but they're hidden inside. The ears are actually tall on the head and that's where it gets the name from it's a display thing yeah well I'm suggesting as my gift that you go along to an estuary and have a look at the wading birds which are in right now and that's something we're going to be featuring on a very special edition of Mooney Goes Wild on the 31st of December that's a Saturday morning from 8 until 9am we'll be at various locations throughout the country to bring you all the reports of what's going on Richard you're going to be at Rogerstown with Terry Flanagan just tell people a little bit about Rogerstown Estuary if you would Rogerstown Estuary is a very important wetland area that few people really know about well it's things have improved there is now a park there which um, has brought people into the area it is tidal just like Malahide Estuary is the sills are not as constraining as those are in Malahide, so you get quite a big mudflat area inland of the railway viaduct. Outside the railway viaduct, you have the huge areas of mussels. Mussels. You walk over a carpet of mussels. It's one thing to walk over grass, a plant, but there you can walk over animals, countless animals. It's a remarkable place. It's almost wild. It's getting tamer. When I used to go there first, it was a very wild place. You got away from it all. You could convince yourself you were back in wild, uninhabited nature. Now it's not quite like that but it's still a lovely place to go. Lots of duck, geese. And sometimes you get grey-like geese there a flock of them. Uh, lots of things. It is, it is quite a place. I think waders are an absolutely wonderful subject for a programme like this because they're the unsung heroes of Ireland's bird life, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and I know on, on the programme over the years we've done a lot to showcase them, and rightly so, because they're some of the world's greatest travellers. They travel huge distances to come here to us in Ireland. Ireland also really punches above its weight when it comes to these wading birds, these generally long-legged, long-beaked birds that we find in our coastal estuaries, mudflats on our beaches. Uh, we have over 30 different species that regularly occur here. Some of them are just passed through on migration. Many of them come here for the, for the winter to escape the cold conditions of the Arctic areas where they would normally breed. We also have a core breeding population of wading birds in Ireland. Birds like lapwing, redshank, snipe, famously the curlew as well, all declining drastically. And uh, so it's really good to be celebrating this. Some of the most interesting birds, but often to people who aren't into birds or just have a passing interest in them, they aren't really aware just how beautiful and how important these birds are in our ecosystem. Well, even if you just get out over the next few days, particularly on Christmas Day, if you're looking for a little bit of an escape, just go down to an estuary and have a listen. Not even a look, just a listen to the birds. It's the it's sound. a wonderful sound. It is. The sound is one of the main things, actually. You don't even need binoculars or a telescope no. to enjoy that. You'll hear the waders, all the peeping and chirping that they do. If you're lucky, you'll have a, a few ducks around as well. One of my favourite winter wetland sounds is actually a duck called the widgeon. It makes this lovely whistling sound. We think of ducks as quacking, but actually it's really just the mallards and one other species called the gadwall we have in Ireland that do that. Other ducks make all sorts of whistling kind of noises and it's just so atmospheric when you're there. And if you're very lucky and you're looking at all these waders and ducks, you might see a predator like a merlin or a peregrine falcon just zip through zip trying to catch them. Yeah. It's amazing. Now, Niall, uh, we can't leave without talking about Birdwatch Ireland and the shop that you have out there for people who want to buy something for 
the loved ones. Go ahead. Yes, absolutely, Derek. Yes. So Christmas is a very important time for charities like Birdwatch Ireland. We raise a lot of money through the sales of, of things through our shop uh, all throughout the year, but especially at this time of year. So I took a spin during the week down to Birdwatch Ireland's shop in our head office down in Kilcool in County Wicklow. And when I was there, I spoke with my colleague Jim McGill, who runs the shop for us. Very busy time of year for Jim. I felt I felt bad actually interrupting him. There's so many packages <laughs> and parcels around him. That's I'm sure good. That's good. It is. I'm sure he didn't appreciate the interruption, but um, he did give me a few minutes of his precious time to talk through some of the options and his recommendations this Christmas season. Hi Niall, welcome. Yes, it's really busy here. Everything is selling well. Books, cards, feeders, calendars. A couple of books in particular that are really selling well. The Pocket Guide to the Common Birds of Ireland by Eric Dempsey and Michael O'Cleary. That's an excellent book. Um, We've also got The Birds of Ireland, A Field Guide by Jim Wilson and Mark Carmody. Both excellent field guides, of course, written by people who are well known to Mooney Goes Wild listeners, big friends of the show. A good field guide is it's a great way to start your your, your voyage of, of discovering and learning about birds, be it what's outside your window, what you see on your daily walk. And before you know it, um, you'll be you'll be flying and you'll be identifying new birds all the time. The, both of those books have really, really good illustrations in them. So they're very attractive and it makes learning all about the birds a lot easier. So it definitely would be highly recommended. So, Jim, other books away from the field guides, what else would you recommend at the moment? Two beautiful books at the moment are The Birds of County Cork. It's a wonderful book, a huge, big, uh, weighty tome uh, for the serious birder in your life. Or also uh, The Natural History of Cape Clear by our own Steve Wing. is another excellent book, really beautiful. The books we mentioned just there, they're mostly suitable for adults. We have some great books for kids as well. So maybe we might mention a couple of those. Beautiful little book here called The Easy Guide to Garden Birds by Mary Louise Heffernan. Wonderful little book. Kids really would love that one. Also, the first book of Garden Wildlife by Mike Unwin is uh, really good for kids. There's also a first book of birds, which obviously we, we would love that one. And also Garden Bugs as well. Now, one of my favourite kinds of books are the ones that have sound built into them. We actually have a range of these. I know they're aimed mainly at children, um, but I know a lot of adults who love them too. The one I have in my hand here is the little book of garden bird songs. There's a whole range of them. We also have woodland birds. We have birds of the dawn chorus, which I know is one that you'd particularly like, Derek. Uh, and having the pictures there, but also the sound of the bird makes a big difference. Now, they, they're great. They have this uh, little speaker built into them and they're run by batteries. And you just push the button and you hear the song of the bird. So, Jim, maybe you could take us through a few of those. Gladly. Here's a popular one. That's the robin. Uh, Everyone should know that one. Uh, Here's a beautiful bird as well. It's another bird that's uh, growing in numbers, the goldfinch. Uh, How about another one? Greenfinch. A bird that's been declining actually within Ireland, so it's nice to hear. It's a while since I've actually heard that song of the Greenfinch. The numbers have been going down, which is sad, sad to hear. Um, but also, um, in addition to those books, we also have our very popular um, soft toys that also sing. They're made from, by a company called Wild Republic, uh, and they, they're, they're really nice. So there's many different ones in stock. You maybe play two first there, Jim, and tell us what they are. What's this one? Another bird uh, popular in these parts, the Great Spotted Woodpecker. And here, here's another one. I'll have a listen. That's the chaffinch. And they all feature the real sound of the bird played on a little chip run by battery inside the soft toy. Uh, Safe for children ages three and up and a real, really popular present each year. They always sell really, really well for us here in Birdwatch Ireland. Now, Derek, before I hand back to you, just I want to make a, a quick plug for a, a gift that I always suggest to the listeners at this time every year, and that is Birdwatch Ireland membership. As a charity, the, the funds we re- get from our members make a big difference to supporting our work. And there are many other nature charities across Ireland, too, that also deserve your support. It really is a great way to try and, and help make sure that those animals and plants are there for future generations, because biodiversity is in crisis at the moment. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. When people join us, they get a lovely welcome pack with a set of posters, information about all our work that we're doing, our 20 nature reserves across the country you get a lovely magazine called wings posted to you throughout the year we also for our family and our junior members we have a magazine called bird detectives which is aimed mainly at primary school age students but i know a lot of adults who love it as well you also then get access to over 450 different events run by our local branches all over the country you get to take part in our surveys take part in our online seminars all sorts of things like that and of course you're benefiting nature too so it's a win-win for everybody and it's a gift that will keep on giving all year 
Details of all the gifts suggested by our panel on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. More gifts for you now from the programme team in the form of radio programmes. The first one will be broadcast on Christmas Day, the 25th of December, between 3 and 4pm. And it's a special about holly and ivy, two native Irish plants that have long been synonymous with Christmas celebrations. Though common and widespread, holly and ivy have both been cherished for centuries as symbols of hope and rebirth, resolutely and defiantly bearing their vibrant green leaves throughout the cold, dark winter months, a time when most other plants lie dead or dormant. So it's no wonder that they have been co-opted as part of our Yuletide celebrations and are even the subjects of one of our most beloved Christmas carols. There's no mistaking the holly tree. It's one of our biggest evergreen trees that grows as a native here in Ireland. And it's a, it's a common constituent of many of our uh, lowland woodlands. With its shiny, spiny leaves, it is a remarkable tree. And you can understand the pleasure that our ancestors took in, in seeing that plant surviving right through the winter, being covered in snow. It always gave you hope that you know, life was going to return at some point in the, the following spring and summer. So the holly is a is an extraordinary tree with its spiny leaves and there's a lot of theories and tales as to you know do these leaves prevent browsing animals from grazing on the leaves and some people have reported the fact that sometimes a holly tree appears to have spinier leaves lower down than it does at the top of the canopy where of course the deer and other browsing animals can't reach but in fact that's been proven to be not an accurate representation so the spininess of these leaves appears to be an adaptation that we're not really sure what its purpose is. But another idea is it actually sheds the electrostatic charge. When a storm is approaching, a problem that a lot of plants sense with a lot of electricity in the air is that water is stripped off the leaf by the electrostatic charges. So having spines acts like little tiny lightning conductors sat on a building. They disperse the charge and remove it. The other amazing thing about a tree is if you look carefully on a holly tree, every now and again you'll find a branch that has got different leaves. They can be a lot spinier or a lot smoother. Some will have almost no spines at all. And what we've got growing in collections such as the National Botanic Gardens is a huge range of different cultivars of holly. These are varieties of holly that have been sourced from the wild. Sometimes they're much spinier, sometimes they have yellow fruits, sometimes they have almost pale white pinkish fruits. And this variation appears on the tree. It doesn't come from seeds, it comes from the tree itself. And if we look at the canopy, we can sometimes find a branch with far spinier or far smoother leaves. And we can literally take a cutting. We can snip that off with a pair of secateurs, stick it in a flower pot, and it will root, and we can grow a brand new variety of holly. Dr Matthew Jebb, Director of the National Botanic Gardens, who will feature in our special about the holly and the ivy on Christmas Day. On St. Stephen's Day, the 26th of December, we bring you the story of Zarafa the Giraffe. In 1827, a new craze hit Europe, sparking a media and popular culture frenzy. The catalyst was an animal. But not just any animal. She was the most exotic and outlandish creature ever seen by the European public at that time. Her name was Zarafa, and she was the first giraffe to set foot on French soil. Zarafa was a gift to King Charles X from Muhammad Ali Pasha of Egypt and was a prime example of what is termed animal diplomacy, where nations attempt to curry favour with others through gifts of rare and beautiful wildlife. Following a 41-day trip on foot from the southern port of Marseille, she took up residence in the Jardin de Plantes in Paris, an object of wonder and curiosity. The giraffe here was on public view for so many weeks and months 
by the time it finally would get to Paris, it had been on the go for two years. So the public had started following its story for a long time, and there was tremendous expectation as to would we ever get to see it, this amazing beast that no one's ever seen before, or they didn't think anybody had ever seen it before. You can imagine the effect on people in countryside France. It would have been the most amazing thing that they'd ever seen. It would be as if someone knocked on your front door and said, come outside, have a look, there's a dinosaur coming down the street. That's about the level of awe that people would have had at seeing a giraffe this size, by now probably more than 12 feet high, parading down the street. So the giraffe was kept in Marseille. It was taken out for regular walks to stimulate public interest in it. It created a sensation wherever it went. Large crowds followed it every day. And it spent the winter in Marseille because it couldn't really travel during the winter because it would be too cold and the trip would be too hard. They also couldn't sail it to Paris because Paris is land-bound, it's not on the coast, and also it would involve a very, very long trip by boat. So they decided they would walk the giraffe from Marseille in the south all the way up to Paris. The giraffe went at a very stately pace. It was going two miles an hour. And the whole walk took three months. On the way, they stopped at little townships and villages. Everywhere they went, they were the biggest thing that, that everyone had ever seen. And they attracted crowds from everywhere. The publicity that was given to the giraffe was helped along by the fact that newspapers were just emerging at this stage. They weren't really news newspapers. Most of them were just sensationalist, what we'd call sensationalist rags, I suppose, and we probably still have them. And they were always on the lookout for scandal, spectacular murders, and anything that caused a sensation. So for those newspapers, the giraffe was just manna from heaven. Every day there was a story that they could be telling about the giraffe and every day every bit of news became just another item which stirred up people's interest and their expectation and their desire to see the giraffe. The incredible tale of Zarafa the Giraffe, which will be broadcast on the 26th of December right here on Radio 1. And then finally... On the 31st of December, the Money Goes Wild team invites you to pull your chair close to the radio and enjoy the wonderful winter sound of waders. So lots of goodies in store for you over the Christmas period, courtesy of the Money Goes Wild team. All the details on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, just before we go, some good news. We always bring you good news. And it's about the appointment of 10 new biodiversity officers around the country to tackle the ongoing climate emergency and nationwide biodiversity loss. Clare, Cork, Galway, Kerry, Kildare, Kilkenny, Offaly, Sligo, Westmeath and Wicklow will each get a new officer. They will join local authorities, which already have a dedicated biodiversity officer. And the programme is being delivered by the Heritage Council and the County and City Management Association with the support of the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage and the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Our researcher, John Bell O'Reilly, met Virginia Tian, Chief Executive of the Heritage Council in Dublin City Centre, to find out more. When we are aware of the loss of biodiversity, the Heritage Council funds the National Biodiversity Data Centre, which is an excellent programme recording information about our species across Ireland. A number of citizen scientists contribute to that programme. And the outcome from the programme demonstrates a huge loss in bird life, in other species such as bees and butterflies, and a diminishing of our natural environment. So in order to respond to that 
and to respond to the national requirements to address issues arising from the climate crisis, we decided to work with the National Parks and Wildlife Service and other colleagues to set up this programme and support communities who are concerned about the loss of biodiversity in the place where they live. The new biodiversity officers will have a range of responsibilities. Among those is to develop and implement a county biodiversity plan. A county biodiversity plan is a plan whereby the county council, in consultation with the community in a particular county, define their priorities over a period of three to five years, where the people who live in the county identify the areas they'd see of greatest concern and potential areas of biodiversity loss and look at how these issues can be addressed, be it a concern around hedgerows, for example. If hedgerows are being cut inappropriately, if they're not protected, if there's a loss of hedgerows through strimming on roadways or for other reasons, This is a problem because there is a decline in species, not only plant species, but also insect life and other life that's central to the ecosystem. The biodiversity plan for the county can prioritise issues like that and put in place other initiatives, for example, specific planting that people may recommend that is relevant in that particular place, be it a marine environment or an agricultural environment, or indeed, obviously, an urban environment as well. Different responses for different places. Another one of the duties would be to advise local authorities on the authorities' obligations in relation to protecting biodiversity. Do any examples come to mind? The protection of ponds, which are great reservoirs of biodiversity as well. Frequently, these often misunderstood areas are not protected and uh, landowners are aware of their importance on their land and it would be wonderful if a local authority could support both private owners and indeed the management of their own sites in a way which ensures the protection of biodiversity. That's really fascinating about ponds. So in practical terms What would the new biodiversity officers do here? Would they identify appropriate ponds and bodies of water and liaise with the owners whose land the ponds are on and advise them? Or how exactly would that work in in real terms? Well, in real terms, they could, of course, work with owners, I mean, with the permission of the owners, obviously, and support them in the protection of assets that owners would have on their own land, but also with local authorities themselves, who sometimes don't always have access to the expertise that they may feel that they would like to have um, when they're developing county development plans, for example, and other areas of work particularly in the area of planning that local authorities are engaged in, to have access to that expertise. It's a a specialist area, it's like archaeological expertise and other heritage specialisms. So having biodiversity officers will highlight the significance of biodiversity to those working in local authorities and support those with the responsibility for developing plans to account for biodiversity. So the 10 new officers, when will they be appointed? Well, I know that already four local authorities have advertised for positions, so I would hope that they will be able to appoint people before Christmas and then the remaining six will be appointed early in the new year, I would hope. But also we will provide additional funding in 2023 for 10 more officers at minimum and probably 15. And we would hope by 2024 that there would be a full complement of biodiversity officers across Ireland. Good news indeed. More details on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's all we have time for. Tonight, my thanks to our broadcast coordinator, Jarleth Holland, our researcher, John Bell O'Reilly, our expert panel, Niall Hatch, Aina Nilana, Dr Richard Collins and Terry Flanagan. All that remains for me to do is to wish each and every one of you, our listeners, a very happy Christmas. So until we talk to you on Christmas Day from three o'clock right here on RT Radio 1, bye! Happy Christmas! Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.